Again, if you can find your seats and turn to Exodus chapter 25, we'll be uh, back in Exodus this morning. Exodus 25, we'll be starting verse 1. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, uh, scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tan ram skin, goat skin, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate piece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the patterns of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, you so you shall make it. Let's pray. Dearly Father, Lord, I pray, Lord, as we enter into this portion of Exodus that is probably unfamiliar to most of us, Lord. Um, God, I pray that you would open up our minds, Lord. I pray the Spirit would work on our hearts to understand not only what is going on in the next few chapters, the second half of the book of Exodus, Lord, but understand why the tabernacle is so significant, why it's important, and why it's important for us to understand it and all the symbolism behind it, Lord. God, I pray that you're with us this morning as we kind of take a look at the book of Exodus as a whole and and, kind of where we're going, Lord, that, um, God, this would be a beneficial time that would help us understand, Lord, what you are teaching us in this book, and not just this book, Lord, how it fits into Scripture, the meta narrative of Scripture, Lord, how, how your redemptive purposes, Lord, are seen here and go all the way to Christ, Lord. So, God, be with us this morning in your Son's name. Amen. You may be seated. We are uh, starting Exodus chapter 25, which really is the beginning of a new section in the book of Exodus. Uh, Chapters 25 through 31, Moses is now up uh, on the top of the mountain, and God is speaking to Moses, giving him detailed instructions, and I mean detailed instructions, on how to build the tabernacle. Today's sermon is going to be a little bit different, and if you're new this morning, this is different than a a typical sermon that would be preached uh, here. Today's sermon is going to be kind of like an introduction. Uh, Normally when you... uh, grab a book of the Bible and you start to preach through it, the very first sermon that you do is an introduction to that book. We're about halfway through the book of Exodus, and and I want to do a sermon that kind of explains where we're going, what's going on, kind of get the overview of the book of Exodus as a whole, and and, and kind of like a sermon of introducing the second half of the book of Exodus. And the reason I'm going to do that this morning is because the second half of the book of Exodus is the unfamiliar half of the book of Exodus. Most people know... uh, for the most part, the first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus, they know the story, but the second half of the book of Exodus is, is unfamiliar to most Christians, the, to the church 
today. So I want to do a kind of an overview, introduce uh, what's going on. And I, and I kind of want to warn you this morning, after I preached first service, I realized that this sermon is going to be a little technical and, uh, and going to be going back and forth on what's going in the book of Exodus. Uh, but I think it'll be beneficial um, to just get our minds wrapped around the second half of, of the book of Exodus. So I have three parts of the sermon this morning, and we're going to go from broad to narrow. Right, the first part of the sermon, I want to look at the outline of the book of Exodus as a whole, the entire book. I want to look at its outline, but I want to focus on the second half, right? Chapters 19 through 40, we're going to focus on that, kind of where we're going and seeing where we're at in the book of Exodus right now. From there, I want to, I want to look at chapters 25 through 31. You're going to hear me say that a lot today. Chapters 25 through 31, which are the instructions for the tabernacle that, that God is giving to Moses. Uh, that's the portion of scripture we're going to be in for the next several weeks. And so the second part of the sermon, we're going to just kind of do an overview and look at, look at those uh, um, six uh, chapters. And finally, I, I want to switch gears to the last point of the sermon, or last part of the sermon, and look at the passage that we just read this morning, just the first nine verses of um, chapter 25. And there's a a main application point that I think we could take home from those uh, nine verses. Um, so again, we're going to go from broad to narrow, three points of the sermon this morning, the outline, the instructions, and the offering. The outline, the instructions, and the offering. So let's start with the outline. Uh, one of the first things I did as I was getting prepared to preach the book of Exodus and studying the book of Exodus was that I made an outline of the entire book, which was a pretty large task because the book of Exodus is a large book, 40 chapters. Um, but outlines are extremely helpful. And if you've listened to me preach long enough, you probably have figured that I like outlines, especially in books uh, of the Bible. They're really helpful because they get your mind wrapped around the book. They help answer questions like, what's the main theme of the book? How does this book fit into the rest of scripture as you're looking at the outline of this book? Or, or where is the author going as you're preaching? That's extremely important, knowing where the author is going. In fact, if you really want to study a book of the Bible in-depthly, one of the best things you can do is to make an outline of the book. And as you're studying it, it's inevitable your outline will change a little bit if you, as you understand the book a little bit better. But it gets you kind of knowing where the book is going and what the book's about. My original outline for the book of Exodus had four major parts. The four parts were redemption, covenant, worship, and restoration. Redemption was chapters 1 through 18. Covenant was chapters 19 through 24, the part that we've just been in for, for a long time now. Worship is chapters 25 through 31. That's where Moses gets the instruction for the tabernacle. And finally, Restoration, chapters 32 through 40. Redemption is the first part. Again, this is the most familiar part of the book of Exodus. That's chapters 1 through 18. It's where uh, we uh, understand the story the best. This is where God saves Israel from slavery in Egypt. And he does this by raising up an unlikely hero or redeemer, uh, Moses, a man that is a sinner, as we learn in the first two chapters of Exodus, a man who couldn't speak well, probably had some kind of speech impediment, and God was going to use him for public speaking to Pharaoh. 
um, an unlikely hero. He uses Moses to confront Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, to let Israel go, God's people, to let them go. When Pharaoh refuses to listen to Moses and therefore refuses to listen to God, God put on display his power, and we've learned that the main theme of Exodus is God revealing his character, revealing who he is, revealing what it means that he is Yahweh. And he did this in the first part of Exodus with ten awesome, devastating, miraculous plagues. Ten plagues which revealed God's might, his power, his sovereignty, and really revealed his justice as he poured out these ten plagues on Egypt. Pharaoh, after the tenth plague, finally lets Israel go. The Israelites cross the Red Sea and end up at Mount Sinai. They were saved from slavery. Now, that's a part of Exodus that most of us know and are pretty familiar with. Uh, but at this point, and I want you to understand this, at this point, Israel really belonged to God. They belonged to God because God redeemed them from slavery. In other words, he bought them out of slavery. They're his. It's his nation. But from chapters 19 through 24, God is going to enter into a relationship with his people. He bought them out of slavery. Now he's going to enter into a relationship with them, a covenantal relationship with the people of Israel. This brings us to the next major portion of the book of Exodus, the covenant. It's chapters 19 through 24. Again, this is where we've been. Exodus chapter 19, we see God come down from heaven to the top of the mountain, Mount Sinai, in the presence of the Israelites, and he, he starts the process of making a covenant with the people. He does this by giving them Ten Commandments. From these Ten Commandments, there's laws of applying these Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, and the, there's a number of laws in a book that Moses calls the Book of the Covenant. We took time to walk through all the different laws in the book of the covenant. In fact, if you would, turn real quick to Exodus 24, verse 7. So chapter over, Exodus 24, verse 7. It says this in verse 7. Then he, it's Moses, then he took the book of the covenant, all these laws, the application of the Ten Commandments, all these laws, we went through them. He took the book of the, uh, of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. He read all the laws in the book of the covenant so the people could hear these laws. And they said, this is what the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. In other words, the people made a vow to obey. They said, we promise we will obey these laws. Now, I use that word vow on purpose because this is somewhat like, and somewhat, not exactly, but somewhat like the vows made at a wedding ceremony. In fact, we just had a wedding ceremony um, this week, and so my mind is wrapped around uh, what it goes on at a wedding. Um, and you think about the vows at a wedding. But what is a wedding? It's, it's two people coming together entering into a covenant with each other. And these two people make promises that they'll be faithful to this covenant. They make vows to be faithful to the covenant. In a similar way, Israel was vowing to be faithful to the covenant 
that they were entering into with God, a relationship between Yahweh and a people. Look at verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in in accordance with all these words, these words that they said that they would obey, these vows that they were making. By the end of chapter 24, Israel is in a covenantal relationship with Yahweh. And again, in a lot of ways, what happens in Exodus 24, the ceremony that happens in Exodus 24 is like a marriage ceremony. Exodus 24 is a ceremony that ratifies the covenant between God and Israel. Now, this is super important in really understanding the second half of the book of Exodus, knowing that that God and Israel are now in a covenantal relationship with each other. At the end of Exodus 24, Moses goes up into the mountain, that's where we've left off, for 40 days and 40 nights, and during this time, he's getting instructions from God how to build the tabernacle. Now, we're going to talk about the tabernacle a lot in the next coming weeks, but the tabernacle is a tent. It's a tent like a portable temple. In fact, it becomes a temple eventually when Israel's in the promised land and is settled. But as they are moving through the wilderness, the, the tabernacle is where uh, the presence of the Lord would be found in the middle of Israel. Exodus 25 through 31, again, these six chapters that we're going to be in for some time, are the detailed instructions for building the tabernacle. Now, what's interesting about this we get in our minds wrapped around the second half of the book of Exodus. Chapters 25 through 31 are the instructions for the tabernacle. Chapters 35 through 40, that's the end of the book, is a detailed account of the construction of the tabernacle, meaning chapters 25 through 40 are mostly about the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. In fact, just about every single chapter besides three has to do with the tabernacle the second half of exodus is largely about the tabernacle which should tell you something the tabernacle is extremely important it's extremely important and why is it important well before christmas we talked about it a little bit we learned that the tabernacle is actually a mini mount sinai as God's presence came down on the mountain. At the top of the mountain, God's presence will enter in to the tabernacle. In fact, in Exodus 19, God came down from heaven to the top of the mountain. Now he's going to come down even further and dwell in a sanctuary built for him. Look at Exodus 25, verse 8. Exodus 25, verse 8. For the instructions of the tabernacle, again, that's 25, chapters 25 through 31. Verse 8 is probably one of the most important verses. It's kind of like the thesis statement. This is why the tabernacle. Exodus 25, verse 8 says this, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Just like God dwelt in heaven, then he dwelt on the top of the mountain, Now he will dwell in the tabernacle. And look at verse 8, because this is extremely important. It says this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God is going to live in the midst of Israel. 
Now, that verse may not be meaningful, but when you put the whole outline together, what we've kind of gone over so far, it becomes meaningful. Let me just explain, right? After redeeming, saving Israel, let me stop there and just say this, a slave nation, uh, not a powerful nation, not, not a nation worth saving, honestly, I mean, a nation that started with one man that eventually became 12 sons that eventually became a large nation, but they were a slave nation. God redeems them out of slavery and saves them. And then in Exodus 19 through 24, God enters into a covenant with them. He already owns them, but now he's entering into a covenantal relationship with them. What I said, somewhat like a wedding ceremony. Let me ask this question. What happens right after a wedding ceremony or a wedding celebration? The husband and the wife start living together. Think about what God's doing. He's preparing a place to live with the Israelites. Verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Listen, this is what makes the golden calf narrative so meaningful and horrific. Turn to Exodus 32. I want you to think about this. Before Moses can even come down from the mountain with the instructions, not even building the tabernacle, just with the instructions of the tabernacle, Israel's already breaking the first and second commandment. They're already breaking their vows. They built a golden calf, a false god, and started worshiping. In fact, they say this is who saved us from Egypt. This would be like right after a marriage ceremony, right after the vows, after the commitments made to each other, two people entering into a covenantal relationship together in front of witnesses. This would be like the bride finding another man on the way to the honeymoon and cheating on him before they even have a chance to live together. Listen, when you understand the context and the outline of Exodus, you realize that the worship of the golden calf is one of the most horrendous sins in all of Scripture. In fact, how God responds to this sin, more than any other part in all of the book of Exodus, how God responds to this sin reveals his character. It reveals who God is. It truly reveals the character, the name of God, meaning the golden calf narrative, Exodus 32 through 34. These three chapters are are three of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. And just as a side note, they're probably three of the most neglected chapters in all of Scripture by the church. 
And I think that's partly because we just don't understand the Pentateuch. We don't understand the book of Exodus. We don't understand the outline. We don't understand what's going on. It, it, it's just, it's very obvious that this is, is, is three of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. In fact, in the Old Testament, we see very few references to the burning bush at all. But in the Old Testament, we see over and over and over and over and over again people quoting pieces of chapters 20 or 32 through 34, these three chapters. In fact, the steadfast love of God, we see that phrase over and over and over again that comes from these three chapters. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, you see New Testament authors quoting from these three chapters over and over and over again. It's one of the reasons I wanted to go through Exodus is to get to these three chapters super important in understanding who God is. In fact, even Moses in the book of Exodus makes this very clear. I think Moses is showing us in the second half of Exodus that this is the most important part of all of Exodus. Remember, let me go through the outline again. Just think about this. Exodus 25 through 31, six chapters. 25 through 31 is the, all the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. That's a pretty big portion of scripture. In fact, when we go through it, there's all types of details that we're going to be walking through. Six chapters, instructions for building the tabernacle. Then you get to chapters 35 through 40. Five chapters is a detailed account of the construction of the tabernacle. These two large portions of Exodus almost completely mirror each other. Almost word for word. It's like you get the instructions, put this in the tabernacle, and then you get to this, this other part that says they put this in the tabernacle. <laughs> In fact, most people read the end of Exodus and just get frustrated and wonder, why would Moses repeat himself? Why would he spend so much time just repeating himself, so much paper wasted, right? You know, in today's modern era, uh, the paper is not that big of a deal. I mean, we have books upon books upon books upon books, so we're okay wasting paper. But in antiquity, to write large portions of something was very costly. And Moses repeats himself. Well, why would he do this? Let me answer this before we move on. Remember how chiasms work. We've talked about this a lot, how chiasms work, that typically in Hebraic writing, what is in the middle is the most important. And a lot of times, writers will use chiasms to point to something in the middle to say, hey, this is what you need to pay attention to. Well, chiasms often mirror each other, and again, point you right to the center, and that's the most important part. Well, look how the instructions of the tabernacle ends. Turn to Exodus 31, 12 through 18. This is the very end of the er, instructions of the tabernacle. It ends with instructions concerning the Sabbath. That's how that whole portion, chapters 25 through 31, ends. Well, now look how the construction of the tabernacle begins in chapter 35 now. Turn to chapter 35. It begins with instructions concerning the Sabbath. 
They mirror each other. Meaning, Exodus 25 through 31 mirrors Exodus 35 through 40. Therefore, Moses is telling us something. The end of Exodus is this massive chiasm pointing the reader to three chapters. Exodus 32 through 34, three extremely important chapters, three of the most important chapters in all of Exodus. In fact, I'll say the three most important chapters in all of Exodus, and probably three of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. And we're going to get there. That's the outline of the second half of the book of Exodus, and I think that's extremely important to get our minds wrapped around. Now I want to talk about the instructions. Remember, we're going broad. Now I want to narrow it a little bit and talk about chapters 25 through 31. I want to focus on where we're going to be in the next few weeks, the instructions for the tabernacle. We've already learned that the tabernacle is a mini Mount Sinai. It's also a, a sanctuary for God to dwell in to live with his, his, his people that he's now in covenant relationship with. That's what verse 8 tells us. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The tabernacle is actually much more than just those two things. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 1. Exodus 25, verse 1. And I love that this is a whole verse. Verse 1 says this. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, meaning Yahweh, Yahweh said, Yahweh said to Moses. In other words, Yahweh, the Lord, he's talking to Moses. Yahweh said, God is speaking. In fact, again, Exodus 25 through 31, this is what we're focusing on now. Those chapters, those six chapters, only God speaks. No one else says a word. In fact, Moses does not say a word in any of those chapters. The only person speaking is God. God speaks, and, and God gives Moses the instructions. He speaks the instructions for the tabernacle, his creation. Now let me ask a question. Does that sound familiar at all? Think of Genesis 1, where we see over and over again, God spoke. Genesis 1, 3 says, and God said, let there be light. Genesis 1, 6 says, and God said, he spoke, let there be an expanse. Genesis 1, 9 says, and God spoke, right? He said, and God said, let, let the waters. Genesis 1, 11, and God said, let the earth. In Genesis 1, God spoke creation into existence. And there's a connection here between the tabernacle and creation. Now, I'm going to tell you and just kind of give you a foreshadowing of where we're going. We're going to see this connection between the tabernacle and creation over and over and over and over again. Okay, this, is, this is just very obvious. But, but let me just show you one thing and, and kind of an overview of all of, of this uh, six chapters. Let me show you one thing of, of what I mean. Okay, look at verse 1 again. It says this, The Lord said, meaning Yahweh said to Moses, Guess how many times that phrase is used, Yahweh said? Seven times. It's used seven times, Yahweh said. This points us back to the seven days of creation, where God spoke creation into existence. In fact, turn to Exodus chapter 30. 
Exodus chapter 30, look at verse 11. Verse 11, very simply, the Lord said, Moses, look at verse 17, the Lord said, Moses, look at verse 22, the Lord said, Moses, verse 34, the Lord said to Moses, Just like creation, God speaks over and over and over again. There's an intentional connection here to creation. In fact, look at Exodus 31, verse 1, chapter 31, verse 1. This is the sixth time we see the phrase, Yahweh says, the Lord says. Sixth time it's used. Let me ask the question, what did God create on the sixth day? Created man. Created Adam and Eve. And what was Adam's job? To work, I heard it, to work the garden. Look at Exodus 31, verse 1. Yahweh said, the Lord said to Moses, this is the sixth time we see that. Verse 2. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him, this man, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic design, what? To work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stone for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. In other words, this man, this man, Bezalel, Bezalel, this man was filled with the Spirit of God to work. To work to build the tabernacle, to work it. Again, what's that sound like? Adam in the garden. Bezel El is a is a type of Adam. And what's interesting is he's not to work alone. Look at verse six. And behold, I appoint with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamak of the tribe of Dan. Aholiab is is appointed to help. Bizal El, what's that sound like? Eve, who was to help Adam. This means the sixth time God spoke, he appoints two people to work his creation, the, the tabernacle. Let me ask this. Anyone want to guess what happens the seventh time God speaks? Look at verse 12. And the Lord said, God spoke. Yahweh said to Moses, this is the seventh time, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. This is the last thing God commands, the observant of the Sabbath. This points us back to creation. In fact, let me just ask this question. What does the Sabbath have to do with the instructions of the tabernacle? Just think about that for a second. I mean, we have six chapters of detailed instructions of the tabernacle, and that's it, and then suddenly we get to this command of keeping the Sabbath. It really has nothing to do with the creation of the tabernacle unless Moses is intentionally pointing us back to creation. Moses, inspired by God, in fact, God's speaking, and Moses is just writing down. There's a connection between creation, Genesis 1 and 2, 
and the creation of the tabernacle, Exodus 25 through 31. And, and here's the question, because this is really interesting, but why is that significant? Why am I spending so much time pointing this out? Why is God, let's put it this way, why is God making such a clear connection between tabernacle and creation? Here's why. The tabernacle is a recreation of the garden. It's a recreation of the garden. Listen, we're going to see this over and over again. We're going to see allusions to the garden. There's things without, within the tabernacle that are going to point us back to the garden over and over again. The tabernacle is a recreation of the garden, meaning just like God lived in the midst of the garden with Adam and Eve, God is going to live in the midst of the tabernacle with Israel. You know what? This is good news. It's good news because it's the restoration of the garden. It's the restoration of paradise. It's the restoration of a, a relationship between man and God. So let me ask a question. What happens? Let me think about it for a second. If, which I'm claiming, Exodus 25 through 31 is a recreation of the garden, what happens right after the garden was created in Genesis 1, 2, and 3? The fall of man. Well, look what happens in the very next chapter of Exodus Exodus 32. The golden calf. Again, if Exodus 25 through 31 is a recreation of the garden, then Exodus 32 is a recreation of the fall of man. Before the new garden, before it could even be built this time, man sins. He worships a false god. He falls just like Adam and Eve. Which leads to some questions. How can a holy God ever live in the midst of a sinful people? How can man's relationship with God ever be restored? How can we ever return to the garden these questions will be the questions that loom over chapters 32 through 34, those three important chapters. Again, this is where we're going. I want to get our minds wrapped around right, this, this book, the end of Exodus. It's where we're going. Moses is pointing us to these three chapters. But before we get there, we really have to understand the tabernacle in a more in-depth way. So this brings me to my final point this morning, the offering offering. Again, we've gone from broad to narrow. We first, we looked at the outline of Exodus as a whole, just real quickly kind of walk through that, focusing on the second half. Then we went from there to the second part of the sermon to, to looking at chapters 25 to 31, which is the instruction of the tabernacle, the recreation of the garden. Now let's switch gears, and I just want to look at the first nine verses of, of, of chapter 25, and we're going to switch gears here and, and kind of slow down and just look at these nine verses. And I think there's a really good application that comes from this. So if you would, turn to Exodus 25, verse 1. And let's walk through these nine verses. Exodus 
Exodus 25, verse 1 says this. The Lord said to Moses, again, Yahweh said, God spoke. This is the first time out of the seven speeches by God to Moses. And this is what God says, verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. In other words, God tells Moses to go to the Israelites, to ask the Israelites to provide the material, the material to make the tabernacle. Go to the people, take the contributions, ask for the material to make the tabernacle, meaning, meaning Moses was to take up a, a contribution from the people. Not only that, it's very clear that the people were to build the tabernacle themselves. Look at verse 8. It says this, And let them make, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And God's going to give the plan, right? He's given the plan to Moses, eventually to the Israelites. And the Israelites were to provide the material, but not only that, they were to use that material and make the tabernacle. Now, this means that even though there's a connection between creation and the tabernacle, there's also differences that we're going to see throughout. One of the main differences between the garden and the tabernacle was that Israel is going to be the ones that make the tabernacle. It's God's plan. It's God's creation. It's God's word. Israel will build it. And here's another thing that I think it's pretty remarkable because Israel's going to provide the material. I think it's remarkable that God doesn't command them to provide the material. Look at verse 2. He says this. Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. In other words, this wasn't a tax. There's going to be something that's like a tax eventually on. This is where tithing comes from. We're going to see it in the law, but this wasn't that. This wasn't a tax. This wasn't a, a law. This wasn't a requirement. This wasn't a command by God. It was a voluntary offering. It was a free will offering. One commentator put it this way. God makes giving to the building of the tabernacle a voluntary gesture. He does not demand or command how much a person is to give or even that a person must give. He leaves it up to the heart of the individual member of the covenantal community. It was voluntary. Which leads... To another question, and a question I think is pretty obvious. Did God need the Israelites' offerings? You can answer that. No. I mean, again, if there's a connection between the tabernacle and creation, did God need the material offered by the Israelites? He could have just spoke the material into existence. In fact, he could have just spoke the tabernacle into existence and said, this is where I'm going to live. I built it. It's in the midst of you. He doesn't do that. Then why? Why does he do it this way? Why does he ask the Israelites to help? Why does he ask them to make a contribution and then ask them, tell them to make the tabernacle? Here's why. Unlike the garden, God 
is inviting man to be a part of the creation of the tabernacle. He doesn't need him. God doesn't need man. He doesn't need man's help. He didn't need the Israelites' help. He's inviting them. This was a privilege. Now, I want to come back to this thought, but let's walk through the next couple verses and look what the people look at what the people were were asked to give. Look at verse three. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them: gold, silver, and bronze. Now, these are three precious metals and very similar to today gold is the most precious silver is the next and finally bronze right costly but not near as costly as silver and gold that's important to keep in mind Uh, gold silver and bronze very costly look at verse four blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine uh, twine linen goat's hair now the reason colors are mentioned this is kind of different for us because we have all types of colored shirts and, and curtains. And but back then, dyed yarn was extremely expensive. Right? Dyed yarn, this dyed yarn is going to be used for the curtains of the tabernacle. And, it, and it's extremely expensive because dye was hard to come by. In fact, I, I read as I was studying this, I, I was going to go into all the details, but I kind of got lost in it, um, of what it takes to get purple dye. It's pretty incredible. It's one of the reasons only royalty wore purple, because that color was just so hard to get dyed into material. So the blue and purple was expensive dyed material. But there's something else that's kind of interesting in this. You have blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, like fine linen, twine linen, but then there's goat's hair. Now, goat's hair was, was useful, but it wasn't as expensive as the other things. One of the things we're going to see in the tabernacle, which is interesting, is that that... As you get closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, you're going to see more expensive material used. And the Holy of Holies, like, it's just all gold. And as you move out, you get to the bronze altar, which was in the go- uh, courtyard. That's bronze. And as you get closer, you get the purple and blue curtains. You get out to the courtyard, you get goat's hair. <laughs> and we'll talk about that as we get to it. But it's a, I think it's important to understand that there was, there was differences in cost in this material that was to be given to Yahweh. Right, for the tabernacle to be built. Look at verse 5. It says this, Tan ram skin and goat skin, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones. Now there's a connection again to Genesis. Onyx stones and gold. We see these in the, uh, in the garden, right, or in the creation. Onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breast piece. It's 14 different materials uh, mentioned in these verses. God's asked for, for some that are very expensive, like gold, and other things that were not as expensive, like goat's hair. Right? Meaning, even the poor could contribute a little. Even the poor could give. This leads to a, another question, and this is an important question. Where did Israel get valuable material from. I think a lot of us remember this, but but think about it. They were a slave nation. I mean, they weren't wealthy. They're wandering. They don't have a land, meaning they don't have a land to settle and produce wealth. 
and then trade and get gold and silver and all these different things. So, so where did all this wealth come from? Well, turn to Exodus 12, verse 35. I know most of you know this, but let's just read it. This is before the Red Sea crossing. This is before they, they leave Egypt, before God pulls them out. Exodus 12, verse 35. It says this in verse 35, The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. This is what Moses told them to do. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. In other words, they asked the Egyptians, their enemies, for wealth. Precious metals, stones, expensive clothing, jewelry. Verse 36, three important words. And the Lord, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and this is remarkable, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Normally you plunder by attacking, destroying, and taking, right? It's, it's rare to have a, a nation that's way weaker on paper than another nation, right? And they just go, hey, can you give me all your wealth? And that nation that's more powerful going, yeah, sure. <laughs> that doesn't happen unless there's a miracle involved. In other words, God put it on the hearts of the Egyptians to, to just give the Israelites whatever they asked for, and then God commanded the Israelites to ask for gold, silver, and fine linen. Therefore, they plundered the Egyptians, their enemies, just by asking. Meaning, Israel's wealth was given to them by a miracle from God. The Israelites were just stewards of what God had already given to them. Let me just make this clear. God didn't need their help. God didn't need their materials, their wealth. Instead, he was inviting Israel to be a part of what he was doing. It was a privilege. It was a privilege for them to give a contribution, to give back what God gave them already in Egypt. God had rescued Israel from slavery. And not only that, he, he showered them with treasures as they were leaving. He delivered them from their enemies. He led them through the wilderness. He provided water. He provided food. He gave them the law at Mount Sinai and showed them how to govern themselves. And not only that, he showed his glory to them on the mountain. And finally... He entered into a covenantal relationship with them. And now after all of that, he invites them by his grace to be a part of his work. To be a part of the recreation of the garden. To be a part of the creation of the tabernacle. God didn't need their help. He doesn't need man's help. He gave Israel the privilege, the privilege 
to be a part of what God was doing. Listen, it was grace upon grace upon grace. Even the offering was grace. It's a gift of God that they could offer to God. Listen, this is where we get our application this morning. Just like the Israelites, God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need you to evangelize. Hear that? He doesn't need you to give. He doesn't need you to obey. He doesn't need you to go. You know me, I love the Great Commission. I'm always telling people to go. He doesn't need you to go. He doesn't need anything. It's a privilege to do all these things. In fact, let's end here. Turn with me to Acts 17, verse 24. These are two super important verses. Acts 17, verse 24 and 25. These two verses should just humble us. Verse 24 says this. The God who made the world and everything in it, what's that? Creation. He spoke everything into existence. Look what Paul does. He connects it to the the tabernacle or the temple. He says this, Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. Yes, God is dwelling in the tabernacle. His special presence will be in the tabernacle. But God is omnipresent. (laughs) He's all-powerful. He didn't need man to make a sanctuary for him. He doesn't need man at all, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. God is not in need since he himself gives. He's the one that gives. The giver gets the glory. He's the one that gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Try to serve God without life and breath. <laughs> He's the one that gives you those two things. And, and on top of that, everything else. <laughs> everything we have, our life, our breath, our health, our intellect, our wealth, our freedom, all given to us by God. Just like the Israelites, we are stewards of the wealth that God has given to us. Just like the Israelites, we have been given the privilege, the privilege to take part of what God is doing. It's a privilege to share the gospel with someone. God could send an angel to that person and share the gospel with them. He could he's going to in Revelation share the gospel. Angels will fly around sharing the gospel with everyone. He, it's like he does not need you to share the gospel. You get to share the gospel. <laughs> In Exodus 25, God asked the Israelites to give to the building of the tabernacle. He was asking them to give what he already has given to them. 
Egypt, the plunder of the Egyptians, in a very similar way, God asks us to use what he has given to us to further his kingdom. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our wealth. He doesn't need us to give. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. And that's our application this morning. It's a privilege to give. It's a privilege to give our time. It's a privilege to give service and serving others within the church. It's a privilege to give money and wealth. It's a privilege to give our energy. This is the true heart of a cheerful giver. Someone that understands that everything we have is given to us by God. Let me end with a quote about giving. I just think this is a great quote. What's remarkable about giving is that God is willing to receive our offering as an act of worship. It's remarkable that he receives what we give. Everything we have belongs to him already, and he would be well within his rights to take it back. Instead, God allows us to offer it to him as an act of worship. God, this is so important, listen to this. I love this phrase. God has given us, the word give, God has given us the resources to respond to his grace. (laughs) By the way, grace is free gift, meaning he has given us gift after gift after gift after gift. (laughs) Whenever we bring an offering, we are simply giving back to God what he has already given to us. And that's a privilege privilege. It's grace upon grace upon grace. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our God, our our Father, Lord, our, our Savior, our Redeemer, our only hope, our great giver. God, we are so blessed. We are blessed most of all because of the salvation of your son offered to us. That just like Adam and Eve, just like the Israelites in the wilderness worshiping a golden calf, Lord, we were sinners, we are sinners, and yet you are gracious to us and you have paved the way that we can truly have a relationship with you and one day be back in the garden. Relationship restored. God, you are so good. Not only that, you have blessed us with earthly blessings, breath, life, family, intellect, health, energy, wealth. You have given us all of this. And you have given us an opportunity to be a part of what you are doing, Lord. And I pray that we see that as a privilege. Forgive us where we've ever thought you needed us. You don't need us. We need you. Just like the Israelites, you give us what we have to give to you. It's beautiful. We praise you for it. In your son's name, amen.